Um, that as we worship him through song, as we worship him through the word, that we would do this in spirit and in truth. Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be, as I said, and we're going to make our way into Mark chapter 3 this morning. And I, I do pray that this is a help to us today. And as you can see on your outline, uh, the title of, of the message this morning is, What is the Position of Your Heart? What is the Position of Your Heart? We won't read the text again right now, but I do want to go to the Lord in prayer uh, because certainly uh, I need his help and certainly uh, you need his help. And together when we seek his help, um, that's when God does great things in our midst. So let's pray this morning that God would have his way with his word. God, again, we are grateful today for your goodness and your kindness towards us. God, as we sing that song, Behold Our God. It's a mystery that we can even behold you. God, it's certainly nothing that we have earned and nothing that we deserve. Through grace, you have opened the eyes of our hearts to see the truth. And God, I pray that we would rejoice in that each and every day. I pray now as we come to your word that our hearts would be softened, God, that the Spirit would have free course, God, that he would speak to us in ways that, that we don't even know yet that we need to be spoken to. But God, may we be so sensitive that when he speaks, that we hear and that we obey. God, I do pray for the kids downstairs as they get ready to have their own lesson and sing a few more songs, God, at an early age that you would work in their hearts and reveal to them the truth of who you are. God, may we as, as church members who are adults seek to foster their knowledge of you in every way that we can. God, if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, we pray that through the singing and through the preaching, they would understand that this is more than just a mere history book. That this person, Jesus, that we're talking about is truly the Savior. God, may today he become their Savior. God, I pray that you'd be glorified through all that's said and done here today. May we look to you for the good gifts that you desire to give in this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What is the position of your heart? How is your heart today? That's an interesting question, and honestly, it's one that we would do well to meditate on and dwell on, and certainly from a physical standpoint, we understand that the heart matters. A few years ago, when I was having my strange heart issues, um, it was a little bit unsettling because you didn't really know what was going on there, and we're aware through science that if our heart goes, then guess what? So does everything else, right? We're not in a good spot if, if there's something wrong with our heart. The healthy heart is something that I think deeply we all desire, but putting the, the work in to get a healthy heart can often be a battle. 
We aren't here, though, to talk about the physical, but rather the spiritual. As God gave us His Word, we understand that He uses the heart as a picture for much of the Christian life. In both the Old and the New Testament, we see that the heart is really a very big deal. A healthy spiritual heart will walk in step with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God. An unhealthy heart, though, will at times appear to walk in step with the Spirit and the Word, but in reality will actually be very far from God, and it will eventually be evidenced in the fruit that it produces. You see, you cannot see my heart, and I cannot see your heart, but eventually what is in the heart will come out. And so in the Bible, we're called to guard our heart, to keep our hearts, to let the Word of God be written on our hearts. It is from the heart that the issues of life flow. It is the heart that is metaphorically replaced in salvation as God takes the heart of stone and then gives us a heart of flesh. We understand that the heart is the seat of our emotions, our intellect, and our will, and it is crucial to our walk with the Lord. And if we begin to let our hearts wander, and truthfully, there's no telling where we could end up. You see, these commands to keep the heart are not simply cute sayings that we would find on a throw pillow or maybe on our favorite coffee cup, but they're commands from God with purpose. If God is the creator of the body and the spirit, then we would be wise to listen to his instructions even more so about the private things of our lives. Jeremiah reveals to us that our hearts have the ability to do unthinkable wickedness. And I like the old quote by Robert Murray McShane that says this, The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. And so this is why we're told to love the Lord with all of our heart. For in loving Him, we will indeed be led by Him. And in being led by Him, we will find ourselves doing the work that He desires for us to do. And these works will no longer be fueled by the flesh, but they will indeed be fueled by the Spirit of God. And so as we begin today, I ask us again to think about this question, what is the position of your heart this morning? You say, well, I'm at church. Obviously, my heart is good. Friends, do we understand that, that there are many times where we walk through the doors of our ch church and our heart may not actually be in the position that it should be? In fact, there, there are many times when we appear to be serving Christ, but our hearts are not in the position that they should be in. And so I would ask us to genuinely, genuinely think through this question today as we go through this text. And you may be looking at the text today and saying, this has nothing to do with the heart. And I would say, friend, it has everything to do with the heart. The big idea this morning is this. The examining of the heart is a weighty task. But when done in sincerity, it will always prove to be beneficial. When I ignore my physical heart, I am bound to have problems in my physical health. When I ignore my spiritual heart, I am bound to become spiritually ill. And so let's take a look at the text before us today and see what Jesus is seeking to teach us from these passages that are likely very familiar. As you can see on your notes, 
There's four things that I want to draw from this text. And as we go through them, I do pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts, that we would have understanding today, but not simply that we would have understanding, but that we would be obedient to the understanding that God gives us, that our lives would be for His honor and His glory. First thing we see is two Sabbath scenarios. In chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, and then chapter 3, in verses 1 through 3, we're given another glimpse into the life of Jesus, and it appears that these were likely very distant um, incidences or, or times in the life of Christ, but Mark has chosen to put them together with great purpose. As we have said many times through the Gospel of Mark, the Gospels are written with great intention. And as the Spirit works in us today, I pray that, that we would see the purpose of these things being paired together uh, that our hearts would be drawn closer to the person of Christ. And so as Mark carries us along in the gospel story, we see that Jesus and the disciples were once again traveling about. In this first passage, we see that as they traveled, they made their way through a cornfield. And when we hear corn in the New Testament, uh, we're not thinking of the stalks of corn like we see in Franklin County, Vermont, but rather we're thinking of wheat that was growing along the roadside. And so Jesus and his disciples would have been traveling down the dirt roads. They would have been passing these cornfields. And as they passed these fields, the disciples began to pluck the grain and they began to eat it. Interestingly enough, as the Pharisees saw this happen, as they watched what was going on, we understand that they weren't necessarily upset about the work that the disciples were doing, but rather they were upset about the day that the disciples were doing the work on. And it's interesting that as we go through these passages, when something controversial is taking place, the, the, the Pharisees were always there. They were like a roaring lion waiting to pounce on their prey. And you may say, that's a little bit dramatic. The Pharisees weren't that bad. Well, let's get to the end of the passage that we're going to study today. And we will indeed see that the Pharisees were that bad. They were seeking to destroy Jesus. They didn't want anything to do with the Messiah that God had sent to be the Savior of the world. And when the Pharisees saw what was going on here, they were quick to call out the disciples and Jesus for the things that were going on. It takes us back to when Jesus called Levi to himself, and then Jesus found himself seated in Levi's house, table fellowshipping with a group of sinners. Pharisees couldn't conceive of it. How could this so-called Messiah, this so-called Son of Man or Son of God, associate himself with these sinners. We know that Jesus went on to say that he didn't call to come the righteous to repentance, but sinners. And here in this passage before us today, Jesus is revealing another truth about who he is through this passage that could seem somewhat confusing. And so as the Pharisees begin to call out what is going on, we see that from their high-mindedness towards themselves, they began to be critical towards those whom they were watching. Friend, do you understand today that that is the heart of a Pharisee? High-mindedness towards self and critical thinking towards those who you are watching. We should probably stop right there, right? Because how many of us struggle with the heart of a Pharisee at times in our lives? We all do. And so Jesus is, is calling 
for many things here. He's calling for us to see the error of the Pharisees, but he's also calling for us to see the truth of the way of Christ. And as the Pharisees called out what was going on in this instance, as they thought highly of themselves and lesser of those around them, as they viewed what was in front of them as a great sin, never recognizing the sin that was in themselves, we see that they continued on in the conversation. They said, why is it that your disciples are doing something that is so unlawful on the Sabbath day? Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll understand that, again, the physical act of them plucking grain from somebody else's field was not actually a sin. In the law, there was a provision made for those who were hungry as they were traveling that they could pluck the grain and eat it to make sure that they could get from point A to point B. Now, they couldn't bring in a combine and take all of the neighbor's wheat, but they could take enough to satisfy themselves. As I said a moment ago, it wasn't necessarily the physical act that the Pharisees were upset at, but it was the physical act tied with the day that the act was being done upon. And so as the Pharisees saw the disciples grab that wheat from the stock, in their minds automatically on the Sabbath day they were thinking they're reaping from the field. And as they took that grain from the stock and they began to rub it between their hands to take off the husk or the shell, that automatically in the Pharisee's mind would be, okay, not only are they reaping, but also they're threshing. They're doing a day's labor that was forbidden in the law on this day that God had set aside to be a blessing to the people. Now, the Pharisees were, were, were masters at the law, and they were masters on the Sabbath. And their attitude towards the Sabbath was not necessarily a bad thing. They recognized the good gift that God had given. And if it was left alone there, then things would have been okay. But the Pharisees never left things as well enough. They always took it to the extreme. They always took it to the next level. So they began to criticize. And they began to think about the hundreds of laws that they had stacked up around the Sabbath to bolster the Sabbath, but also to bolster themselves and making themselves appear as righteous when in reality we know that their hearts were very far from God. John criticized the Pharisees as being vipers. Jesus criticized the Pharisees as being whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Neither of those things are good. And yet this is what Christ thought of them. Well, our next scene in Mark chapter 3 reveals another Sabbath scenario. As Jesus entered in this one into the synagogue, as he often do, did, he, he was met with a man who had a withered hand. Now, I found my study of the, the man with the withered hand quite interesting, and I hope that it's interesting to you as we go through this time. The historian Jerome says that this man with a withered hand was not born this way, but his hand became this way after an accident. It's said in history that he was a stonemason, somebody who was highly skilled, had great abilities to construct great and beautiful things with the ability that God had given him. And something happened along the way that caused his hand to become injured and withered. And when we think of withered, we could think of this idea of atrophy or deadness. And this man who was once very skilled with his hand now had his hand all withered up. And this man who once probably 
prided himself on the work that he did and the living that it got him, now found himself as a common beggar in the synagogue. So this man had had a whole life story. And so often we just think about the few details that were given in gospel uh, situations like Mark. But each of these people that Jesus came in contact with had a story. Do you understand that today? And just as they had a story, you have a story. And your story, fashioned together by a providential God, brought you to the place where God interacted with you and brought salvation into your life. So Jesus enters the synagogue. And he's met with this man with a withered hand. And again, the Bible tells us, and they watched him. Who were the they? Again, it was the Pharisees who had, who had uh, uh, adopted the lifestyle of Jesus, not because they loved Jesus, but because they were interested in seeing the things that Jesus was going to do. And so the Pharisees, as Jesus came in, began to watch him again to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath day. And why did they do this? That they might accuse him. And so both the account in Mark chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, and the account in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, reveals to us these two Sabbath scenarios where Jesus was allowing things that from the Pharisees' standpoint or perspective should not have been allowed, where Jesus was taking part in things that Jesus, if he truly was from God, should not have been taking part in. And the, the, the Pharisees here picture themselves as being miserable individuals, again, whose hearts were very far from God. As I said a moment ago, I'm going to say it again. Because I think so often the heart of the Pharisees creeps in us as well. But friends, may we desire today through the Spirit of God to never have the heart of the Pharisee. May we never criticize what others are doing for the sake of the kingdom. May we never look at ourselves with a self-righteous attitude, thinking highly of ourselves and lesser of other people. And as Jesus called this man forth, I imagine that the Pharisees began giggling within themselves. Not giggling in sheer delight, but giggling to themselves in a fashion that would say, now we've got him. We've got him. Everything he has done up until this point was ammunition in our gun, but now we have the bomb that we can drop, and now, at this time, we will destroy this man. And while the passages before this often showed the Pharisees in questioning the things that Jesus would do, we must understand that the passages that come after this are all an attempt from the Pharisees to destroy the person that God had sent to be the Savior of the world. And so we have these two scenarios. The first, where the disciples are plucking grain and eating it. They're reaping and threshing, if you want to go that far. And then we have the scenario in the synagogue where Jesus was met by a man with a withered hand and sought to help him. The second thing that we see this morning is two powerful teachings. And if you're saying, I didn't really get much from that first point, hopefully as the points continue on, uh, they'll run together and we'll understand the scenario that really is taking place here before our eyes. The second thing we see is the two powerful teachings. In verses 25 through 28 in Mark chapter 2, Jesus retells this story. He says in He said unto them, Have ye never read what David did 
when he had need and was hungered, he and they that were with him. When you read sayings like this from Jesus, you have to understand in some way that he's being a little bit comical, right? Because would the Pharisees have read the story of David in the Old Testament? Absolutely, 100%. They would have known. And so in a sense, Jesus is calling them on the carpet and saying, you guys know the story that I'm going to tell you. You know the point that it illustrates and how it fits with the point that I am making in this moment. And so when Jesus says, have you never read? He's reminding them that in their lives, they had chosen to be willfully ignorant of the provisions that God had made in the law. It goes on and says that when David was hungry and the men that were with him, they went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and they did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for them. Every seven days, 12 loaves of bread would be brought into the holy place to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And at the end of those seven days, the priests would take those out and replace them with new bread. And the only ones who were allowed to eat that bread in that day were the priests. And so when David came into the temple and he starts having this conversation with the priest and he says, hey, we're hungry, we need some food, the priest obviously got a little nervous because he didn't know what to do. Now, David didn't just come in casually as a passerby saying, give me something to eat. But David was on the run at this point in his life from Saul. He was in hiding. He found himself in the temple and he talked with the priest and we know that Though it was not lawful, we see that the priests gave David this bread, and they did eat, and they were filled, and it sustained them to go on their way. In chapter 3, as Jesus begins to teach, the, 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 the Pharisees and the, those were around them on this day, he says in verse number 4, He says, and he said unto them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And the Bible says they held their peace. Again, this is a revelation of the hardness of the heart of the Pharisees. And they knew that in some ways, while they were trying to trap Jesus, they themselves found themselves in a trap. If they answered one way, it, should have, it would have shown that they were uh, unsympathetic towards those who had needs in their life. If they answered another way, they would have in some ways been siding with Jesus and they couldn't go down either of those roads. And so as Jesus asks them this question, after he called the, withered, uh, the man with the withered hand to come forth, we see that they held their peace because they did not want to give in to the teaching of Jesus. You see, the Pharisees had become strict observers of the Sabbath day and that if, and so much that if somebody was injured, they could stop the bleeding, but they couldn't necessarily stitch it up. They could help someone to a point, but they couldn't do the greatest deed on the greatest day, so to speak. Their line of reasoning in their minds made sense. They were protecting what God had set up. They were the guardians of the law. They were the keepers of religion. But Jesus, in texts like this, was dismantling their defense and showing them the answer of their ways. Now, if we go back to chapter 2, in this teaching, Jesus gives two great truths that are very helpful for us in understanding what is going on here. 
In verse 27, after he had talked about David eating the showbread and how it seemed unlawful, but God made a provision, and we know that God was okay with it because God never condemned it. In verse 27, Jesus goes on to say and remind them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, if we rewind in our minds all the way to our study in the book of Genesis, what do we remember? That in six days, God created the heavens and the earth, And on the seventh day, God what? He rested. Now, did God need to rest? No. God does not grow weary. He does not grow faint. He does not get tired. But the principle of the Sabbath that God set up in the book of Genesis was to be a principle that proved to be a blessing rather than a burden. God is saying, I want you to take one in seven days to set aside time to remember and to reflect on all that I have done for you, all the ways that I have provided for you. As time went on, we see that the idea of the Sabbath was was set up again as God gave the law. As it continued on down the road, we see that the people of God observed the Sabbath to memorialize God bringing them out of Egypt, but also at the very same time to look forward to what God was going to do through the person of Jesus Christ. And so the Sabbath in and of itself was not a bad thing. It was a good thing. But unfortunately, oftentimes, things that are good things become bad things when they're misused and they're abused. And that's exactly what had taken place in the lives of the Pharisees. They had taken this good thing that God had given, this thing that was meant to be a blessing for the people of God, to cause them to remember and to rejoice and to reflect on all that God had done for them, and it had become a burden. And now instead of them remembering God, all they did on the Sabbath day was think of themselves. How can I not? How can I? What can I do? What can I not do? And and this religious system that God had set up to point people to himself, had unfortunately become a religious system that now stacked person against person to say, I keep the Sabbath better than you do, therefore I'm better than you are. And so you see this this gift of God that was meant to be a blessing had become a burden. And Jesus reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God has given this as a gift and it needs to be observed as such. We understand that Jesus didn't destroy the Sabbath or do away with the Sabbath. We understand that Jesus respected the idea of the Sabbath. But what he was doing in this scenario is correcting the false attitude that the religious crowd had about the Sabbath and really about themselves. And then Jesus goes on in verse 28 and says, Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So Jesus says, first off, you need to understand that the Sabbath was given as a gift for you. Secondly, you need to understand, I am Lord over the Sabbath. And as Jesus references himself as the Son of Man again, this is the second time, he's going back to Daniel chapter 7, where this idea of the Son of Man is put on display for us as one to whom all will bow to and one to whom all will serve under. And it reveals the authority that the Son of Man had. And who is the Son of Man? It is Jesus, the Savior of the world. And so as the Pharisees come and say, how dare you thresh and reap on the Sabbath? How dare you heal and do this work on the Sabbath? Jesus says, hold up, you need to remember that I am Lord over the Sabbath and I will do 
I will do what I will with what is mine. Again, this was not Jesus trying to destroy the idea of the Sabbath. But it was Jesus calling these religious Pharisees to understand what the Sabbath was truly for. You're probably thinking in your mind, well, what do we do with the Sabbath today? Personally, I think the principle of the Sabbath is still a very valid principle. That this idea of taking time to remember and reflect on what God has done for us in the ways that he has provided uh, to us to be uh, reunited with God the Father, it is a very valid principle that sometimes we do a really bad job of recognizing in our lives. As I said, it was meant to be a blessing. And as we think of the, uh, uh, setting a day aside to remember and reflect on God and what he has done for us, how many of us would say sometimes that could be a burden to us? But friend, it's not meant to be that. It's meant to draw us closer to Christ. So there are some today who still choose to observe things like the Sabbath. Do I think it's mandatory? I don't. I don't. There are some who set aside time and have certain meals. And I think if done in the right way and with the right heart, it can be a beautiful picture of remembering the rest that Christ has provided through himself. But do I think it adds any righteousness to our lives? I don't. Do I think that it draws us closer to him? I don't. But again, I think the principle is valid, and it's one that we should adhere to. Paul actually speaks of this idea of observing Sabbath days in Colossians chapter 2. He says, Let no man judge you in regards to certain days or special feasts or even Sabbaths. And we would say, well, why would Paul say that? Why would Paul pick out these things and say, let no man judge you. Because the early church was in great conflict over these things. Do we keep them or do we not keep them? Do we follow them or do we go a whole different direction? And Paul says, hey, if you want to do it and it causes you to draw closer to Christ, then by all means, do it. But do it with the right heart. And don't judge those who do or don't. And why don't we judge? Because we have the fullness of what was pictured for us in the Sabbath, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul says that the Sabbath was simply a shadow. Shadows are really no good. When you're a kid, you're scared of them, but can a shadow really do anything for you? No. But can the person who makes the shadow do something for you? Absolutely. And the shadow in the Sabbath is cast by none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why in Hebrews, we're talk, uh, Paul or whoever the writer of Hebrew is, I tend to lean towards Paul, uh, we, we understand that, that he is our rest. No longer do we strive, no longer do we put effort in to, to maintain or gain a, a righteous standing with God, but now Christ is our rest and we look to him. And so as Jesus is giving these teachings, he's calling these individuals to understand that yes, the Sabbath was purposeful, and yes, the Sabbath was meant to be a blessing, but at the very same time, the Sabbath was to point to the one who was with them on that day, Jesus Christ. You may ask further, why don't we worship on the Sabbath? Well, as the early church recognized the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we began worshiping on the first day of the week to commemorate the resurrection of our Savior. And so the Sabbath is, is no longer something that we adhere to from a standpoint of grace, believing that it will bring us righteousness into our lives. 
but the principle of the Sabbath is still valid because any time we stop and reflect and remember what God has done for us is a good, good thing. So the disciples were picking wheat. They were reaping and threshing. And then Jesus was getting ready to heal a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees are all up in arms saying, how can you do these things on the Lord's day? And Jesus says, I can do them because I am the Lord. I'm the one who created these things. And I'll do what I want with what is mine. And remember, these were given to you as a gift, as a shadow of the good things that were to come. Well, then we have the three telling responses. In verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3, the text continues and says, And when, they, when he, speaking of Jesus, had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. Imagine that for a moment. You see this man who who can barely move his hand and he brings it from his side and as he's stretching it out, his hand is made whole just like his other one. What a miracle Jesus performed in the presence of these unbelieving Pharisees. But what a miracle Jesus performed in those who were also his devout followers. For one group, it strengthened their faith. They believed even greater that this was The Son of Man, as referenced in Daniel, this was the Son of God, Jesus, the Savior of the world. But for the rest of the group, it caused them to become angry. Verse number 6 says, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. I don't typically watch things like the State of the Union address, um, and you may think horribly of me for that. But when I do watch things like that, I find it ironic to see the responses of the delegates who are in attendance as they all claim to want what's best for America as a country. Something is said and half the room cheers and applauds and and is overjoyed at the comment that was just made that really probably isn't going to change anything, while the rest of the room is angered. A few moments later, somebody else will make a comment, and the other side of the room that was once angry is now cheering and applauding. And our leaders wonder why our country is such a mess, right? There's division, not just on the bottom, but there's division from the top down. As I read this account, it struck me that as Jesus performed this miracle, earlier on, what did everyone do? They cheered. As as miracles were performed earlier on in the Gospel of Mark, people were blown away that this man could do these things. But now as Jesus does these miracles, what happens? The room is divided. And there are people who are falling more in love with Jesus because of the things that he did. And there are people who are growing in a deeper hatred towards Jesus for the things that he did. And so why did I tell you my view on political TV shows, because that's really what they are, told you because the responses on people's faces are often very telling of what's in their hearts. I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's hard to be up here and look out there. And I don't, I don't say that flippantly. I say it in sincerity. 
Because there's sometimes when things are said that are truth from the word of God, and you may not understand what's on your face, but I understand what's on your face. And when I see what's on your face, you understand that in some regards, it's also telling of what's in your heart. And I'm not just saying that about you. I've sat there many times, and Bruce probably saw that same look on my face, right? But it's true. What's in the heart is eventually going to come out. And here we have three telling responses. The first one is of Christ himself. As he hears the talking of the Pharisees once again, as he calls this man to come forth with the withered hand and his desire is to help him, to to seek to make him whole again. As Jesus looks at the crowd that is in the room and as he thinks back on the other scenarios that he found himself in with the disciples, the Bible says that he looked round about on them with anger. You say, well, Jesus isn't a very spiritual person because he got angry. But aren't you thankful that Mark gives us the reason behind the anger in Jesus? Christ's anger wasn't because of inconvenience, which is often the source of our anger. It wasn't because things weren't going his way. It wasn't because his life was hard. But he was angered because of the hardness of their hearts. He was grieved. That he stood before this crowd of people on this day getting ready to make a man who had suffered for many years with this withered hand whole again. He looks around at the group of people and on their faces, they're angry, they're they're bitter, they're envious, they're jealous. They, they They despise him and as we see in the text, they want to destroy him. And he wasn't just angry because of those things, but he's angry because those things were very telling of where their hearts were. And this crowd that claimed to be so religious and have everything done by the book, and this crowd who could lift up themselves in their prayers, talking about how good they were in comparison to others, Jesus looks in their hearts and he says to himself, they're so far from me. And so his anger anger was out of grief, and that grief was really out of pity for them. Because you know what Jesus understood in this moment? That if they continued with their hardness of heart, that one day they would be separated from him forever. We often say that the Pharisees were the enemies of Jesus. No, Jesus was the enemy of the Pharisees, but, but Jesus was never hostile towards them. He wasn't out trying to trip them up or get them to stumble. He wasn't trying to mess up their lives. He was trying to fix their lives. And so as he told them a few moments ago, hey, remember that I'm Lord of the Sabbath, that in some way was calling them to recognize the deity that he was as the very Son of God. And what did they do? They rejected him. The Bible says that Jesus was angered. As he looked round about them, on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Friend, I wonder... Is God ever grieved by the hardness of our hearts? Is he seeking to do a work in us and we set our faces against him? Is he seeking to lead us in the direction that he would want us to walk in and we flat out tell him no? 
when we view or label the good gifts that he has given to us as negative things that we want to get rid of so our life could become easier? Is God grieved at our hearts? That's the first response. The second response was from the man with the withered hand. As I said earlier, what a picture of the gospel this is. Here this man was at the synagogue in part because he wanted to worship, but also in part because he was hoping to get a handout from those that would attend worship on that day. He was there as a man who could not work for himself, who could not labor to get the things that he needed. And so he found himself at the synagogue hoping to receive something that would get him from one Sabbath to the next. Enough food, enough money to sustain him in the days ahead. And as Jesus walks into the synagogue on this day, he's met by this man. And this isn't the first time that Jesus is met by a man who had something wrong with him. If you remember earlier in Mark's gospel, who was he met with? A man who was possessed with a demon. And as Jesus looked at the demon-possessed man, and now as he looked at this man with the withered hand, he had compassion on them. And Jesus looked to this man, and he told him to stand forth, and then he was going to tell this man to stretch forth his withered hand. Now this man with a withered hand had an opportunity to respond. And you say, well, this is easy. Jesus is telling him to stretch forth his hand and he's going to be made whole. True. But do you also understand that in listening to the words of Jesus, he would have been ostracized by the religious community of his day? That in listening to the words of Christ of stand forth and stretch out your hand, he was setting himself in a position that the religious officials of that day would no longer want anything to do with him. He was a follower of that Jesus. He was not welcomed in their community. He could not work uh, around the temple or receive the benefits of the temple from their understanding or their viewpoint or in their mind. They were done with him if he stood up and stretched out his hand. And yet, what did that man do? He stood up and he stretched out his hand. Friends, what a picture of the gospel this is. You see, because this man had nothing in himself to fix the problem that he had. And isn't that true about the gospel as well? That there is nothing within us that can fix the eternal problem that we have. And yet when Jesus comes in and when Jesus speaks to us and when we follow through in the things that Jesus says, like this man whose hand was made whole, we are made whole. No longer are we identifying with the systems of this world or the religious uh, opportunities that we once had, but now we're identifying with Christ and whether, whether it brings into our lives calamity or rejection or refusal from those that we once used to be around. Truthfully, we have found somebody better to rest in. And so in this moment, this man's response was simply this, that he listened and that he obeyed and he believed. And as Jesus says to this man to stretch forth your hand, it's kind of comical that Jesus would even use those words. Why? Because the man couldn't stretch forth his hand. And isn't that a testament to the power of God in salvation? That he's the one who does the work. And we're the recipients, the benefactors of the work that is done. So as this man listened and believed, his hand was made whole. 
And friend, if you are here today and you have trusted Christ as your Savior in a greater and spiritual sense, as you listened and believed, you and I were also made whole. And I can't help but ask this morning, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, if He is speaking to you today, will you come to Him by faith? You say, well, I... I'm just going to try a little harder or push forward a little longer. If that was the mentality of this man with the withered hand, he would have died with a withered hand. And if that is your mentality towards the saving grace of Jesus Christ and you continue in that mentality, you will die a man or a woman with a withered soul. One who is to be eternally separated from God. And so I ask you today, will you listen to him? The third response that we see is the response of the Pharisees. All that they had heard and all that they had seen on this day, but also on every other day leading to this day, had taken its toll. It's kind of like being around kids, right? For the first little while, yeah, kids are kids and they're going to be kids. But at the end of a day of being with kids, what are you thinking to yourself? I can't do this anymore, right? These kids are crazy. First amen I got all day. Just joking. And as the Pharisees, as they think on the scenarios that they had recently encountered, where Jesus allowed his disciples to thresh and to reap, and as they viewed the situation before them on this day where Jesus did that which was good on the good day, Their minds couldn't conceive of it. So the Bible says that their response is that they left the synagogue and straightway they took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. If you underline in your Bibles, underline those words against him and destroy him and you'll understand in doing so the continual heart of the Pharisees towards Christ. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted nothing to do with the system that he was bringing. They wanted nothing to do with the message that he proclaimed. They were against him and they wanted to destroy him and they would partner with anyone to get this done. If you remember last week, who was it that the the Pharisees had partnered with on that day? It was the disciples of John. Now, the disciples of John and the Pharisees typically would have nothing to do with each other until their issue came up with Jesus, and then they were willing to partner. And now, we have the Pharisees and we have the Herodians. Well, who are the Herodians? They were were less than a political group, and they were a little more than a social group. They were a group of people who desired to see the line of Herod continue on the throne. They were against Rome. They had an agenda. You say, well, the Pharisees wouldn't have wanted to see somebody from the line of Herod sit on the throne. Who would they want to sit on the throne? Somebody from the line of David. Right? They were looking for a political savior who would come in and rescue them from the position they found themselves in. But isn't it true, the old saying, the enemy of the enemy is my friend? And that's the scenario that we see play out here. The Herodians hated Jesus. 
They weren't, he wasn't who they wanted. And the Pharisees hated Jesus. And so though they didn't agree on many things, they agreed on this thing, that Jesus needed to be destroyed. And they began to plot and to, to think on and to form a plan on how they could destroy Jesus. And you know what's so interesting about this, that the Pharisees were so dead set on the Sabbath being a holy day to the Lord. And what were they doing on the very Sabbath day? Plotting on how they would kill Jesus. Doesn't that speak of their heart? Doesn't it speak of their outward show of righteousness rather than a righteousness that was flowing from the inside? They were seeking and how they might kill, truthfully, this innocent man. And those are the three responses. Jesus was angered because of grief in his heart. The man with the withered hand responded by faith and had his life changed. And the Pharisees, as they partnered with the Herodians, found themselves being drawn further and further away from Christ. And as we get to our fourth point this morning, it's simply this one remaining question. And the question is this, what is the position of your heart? What is the position of your heart today? Have you grown in pride over the self-righteous works that you can perform and now, instead of really trusting in Christ, you, you know you've trusted Him as your Savior, but now you're looking for yourself to continue in that righteousness and bring about your own sanctification. What is the position of your heart? As I said a few moments ago, maybe, maybe your heart has never bowed before Him in faith. And if you continue in that way, then you will eternally be separated from God forever. And you may say, that's not fair. Actually, friend, being separated from God is what is fair. And yet God stepped in through his son and made a way for something to take place that wasn't fair. That is us receiving eternal salvation through Christ alone. What is the position of your heart? Maybe today you understand that God is leading you to do something that you are uncomfortable with or something that you could never imagine yourself doing. What is the position of your heart? Will you follow him? Will you be obedient to his words? Will you come after him with a heart of humility, understanding that he is the true son of God, the savior of the world, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, and he is worthy of our following? What is the position of our hearts? You see, in the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus spoke of the Pharisees, he said, You're, in order to make it to God, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And some would look at that and say, Jesus is applauding the Pharisees. No, friend, Jesus is slamming the Pharisees. Why? Because he's revealing that their outward righteousness was not enough to get them to God. And so I ask again, what is the position of your heart? today? Are you trusting in Christ? Isn't it easy in our Christian world that we live in to become religious in the things that we do? And so what is the position of your heart? 
Can I ask you this morning, why are you here? Is it out of fear of what somebody else would think of you if you weren't here? Or is it out of a desire? What is the position of your heart? This morning, or not this morning, I'm sorry, this week, I was confronted with this in my own life. And through a set of circumstances that were unpleasant, and I'm not going to go into the details, um, because it's really of no value to you to know the details. But I was confronted with this question, what is the position of my heart? And you know what I found? That in this area, my heart had begun to be, not begun to be, had become to be pretty pride-filled, pretty arrogant, pretty unconcerned about things that I, I should not have been unconcerned about. So I don't ask us the question this morning, what is the position of your heart? thinking that I have my life put together and you don't and you need this more than I do. Friend, I, I asked the question this morning to us because the examining of the heart is something that we must do on a daily basis. What did Paul ask the church at Galatia again? You began well, but who is it that bewitched you or who is it that, befooled you, that fooled you? causing you to think that though you started in Christ, you can end through your own efforts. As I said last week, the quote from Spurgeon, if there is but one stitch of righteousness that we have to put into our celestial robe of righteousness through our own efforts, then truthfully we have no righteousness at all. And so you say, Dan, this passage is about the Sabbath. This passage is about keeping the day that God had set up as a day of worship, as a day of remembrance, as a day of holiness to reflect on the goodness of God. And in part, I would agree with you that Jesus does address the Sabbath here, but in a greater way do we understand that while He's addressing the Sabbath, He is in reality addressing the hearts of men. And may we never become so arrogant May we never become so arrogant that we allow the heart of the Pharisee to set its place in us, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, because when we do, in reality, what we're doing is thinking much less of the grace of God than we need to think. In closing, the third line of the hymn, Rock of Ages, says this, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I too, the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. What is the position of our hearts today? The big idea, again, was this. The examining of the heart is a weighty task, but when done in sincerity, 
it will always prove to be beneficial. When I ignore my physical heart, I'm bound to have problems in my physical health. And when I ignore my spiritual heart, I am bound to become spiritually ill. Friend, if you're on the brink of becoming spiritually ill today, listen to the warning signs. Back when I was, again, having my heart issues, one of the things that my doctor said, she said, it's good that you're feeling these things because it's telling you that something is going on in your body. Listen to them. Sometimes when the Spirit of God convicts us in our heart, we think that's a bad thing. Friends, it's not a bad thing. The conviction of the Spirit of God is a gift of grace because it brings us back to the place where we are walking in step with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God. And so what is the position of your heart?